from the White Letter Production Studios in Los Angeles, California. I'm Ellie Unger-Sargon, and this is The Cut Podcast. If if you're okay with this, I just wanted to let folks know who I am a little bit. Sure, absolutely. I've sort of appeared out of nowhere. Um, I wrote a book that just came out a couple of months ago called Breaking Their Will, and it looks at what I call religious child maltreatment. So any child abuse or neglect that is religiously motivated. And uh, towards the end of writing the book, I knew I was going to write about male and female circumcision, but I wasn't quite sure where it was going to go, and I thought it was going to be kind of wedged into the chapter on ritual abuse, but as it turned out, I knew it needed to be a whole separate chapter. So uh, my book contains a chapter on male and female circumcision, asking the question, is it religious child maltreatment? So a little background there. Um, I would... And I'm Janet Heimlich, thank you, (laughs) asked by my editor. Uh, I appreciate that edit. I I think what was, there were many things that were striking about the film, but what I thought was the most striking, and this really culminated towards the end, is the fact that this form of abuse is, comes out of, the same cultural problems that give rise to all religious child abuse and neglect. I spend a lot of time in the book talking about the kind of culture that where in which children are at most risk and that is cultures that are authoritarian. And so many of the things that I heard especially the rabbis say, and the doctor who's the Mohelet say, without them, I'm sure, realizing it, were discussing elements of authoritarianism. For example, to say, well, I'm a rabbi. I know I'm abusing this child, but I'm going to obey God and do it anyway. He is a victim of authoritarianism. The doctor who was sort of doing this mind game with herself to say, I'm not going to empathize with this baby. I'm going to just go ahead and do what it is I want to do. She, she's also, um, I think, propelling that kind of mindset. And, and the other thing I wanted to add about the way that authoritarianism um, is a part of this is an authoritarian culture and you can see this in extreme cases, uh, totalitarian regimes or, say, cults and that kind of thing. The good of the culture overrides the good of the individual. And when it comes to the needs of an individual child, they're really shoved under the rug and not even considered, let alone talked about. And so I, I saw that also going on, where the needs, the individual needs of the child and also in some ways the women who were bothered by this were really inconsequential because what is most important to that kind of a culture, and you can see this in Orthodox Jewish cultures, fundamentalist Mormon cultures, um, any kind of, of a very conservative 
or, or extremist religious culture, that the individuals, individualism, the need to express one's individualism, it's just top down. It's, it's just not, it is, it is not a priority. It is not what's paramount. I was wondering if you could give us some specific examples, um, because I think it's, it's really wonderful to have someone such as yourself who's done this research to contextualize circumcision in this way as another form of religious child abuse. And uh, you were talking a little bit before about how, you know, it took you a while, but you, you ended up feeling very strongly that circumcision needed to be a chapter in your book and uh, an important part of, of your study. If you can give us some specific concrete examples um, of other forms of religious child abuse that you see some similarities to with uh, male circumcision. Sure. Um, because my book focuses on American problems, most of the cases that I talk about are Christian-based. Um, that's not to say that Christianity breeds more maltreatment than, than other religions. It just so happens that we are here in America where most people are Christian. And so that's why you're going to see more cases that are Christian-based. I'm sure that you would see um, more ca uh, cases that are uh, based in Islam if you go to uh, countries where that is a prime, primary religion. Um, so you'll see, for example, uh, the need to uh, physically punish children because parents, ministers, and, and the community believe that the Bible requires that children are uh, corporally punished. Now, without getting into the debate whether or not spanking is abuse or not, um, I personally would, would never physically punish my child. Uh, but if you're talking about physical abuse where there is injury, and that can be a bruise, something as minor as a bruise, um, or reddening of the skin that lasts for a long time. Um, I, I have, uh, and I'm sure you're aware of cases where children have been severely injured and sometimes killed. It's, it's not necessarily true that the uh, adults who were perpetrators, who were guilty of this, uh, just sort of lost it completely. Uh, actually, in many of these high-profile pro cases, it's all done in, under a very controlled environment where these spankings can go on for five, six, seven hours. And they'll stop and pray or you know, talk among themselves. A lot of times the perpetrators, it's not just one kind of crazy person, but you might have a couple or you might have a handful of people all part of a particular church. I know that most people are aware of the child death cases where children are denied medical care and they die from easily treatable diseases because uh, those that are in charge of their care believe that medical care should be shunned and instead, they should simply rely on faith healing and the belief in divine intervention. Um, I would say, though, that the most pervasive, uh, well, I will also add that sexual abuse by religious authorities is a big part of my book, too, of course. But the emotional and psychological problems and damage that's due to these forms of maltreatment is by far, seems to be the the most pervasive, the most common. Um, I looked at the uh, 
six significant ways that people will psychologically or emotionally abuse kids, and I focused on four of them. One of them is called exploitation, and that's when a grown-up will just sort of live their life through a child, um, force their desires or beliefs on a child. Male circumcision, as well as female, when it's religiously motivated, is a prime example of exploitation. That doctor, for example, who was so thrilled to sort of get back her Judaism by performing this operation uh, was, was a perpetrator of exploitation. Um, I, I think that a lot of that's subconscious, but when you as an adult are gaining some sort of gratification individually by committing an act that causes injury on a child, um, that permanently disfigures that child, or does something else that's abusive, uh, you're, you're, you're committing an act of exploitation. That's very interesting. I'm wondering also if um, in your work you came across similar kinds of justifications. This is one of the things that um, is sort of really striking to me about um, circumcision is it's so deeply embedded in our culture um, that when you sort of when you ask people why they want it done and people do feel very strongly about it they'll give you like a myriad of reasons it's not like it's never just sort of one reason it's always it's healthier it's beneficial it will look better he'll look more like his father um, God commanded it um, but it, it, typically and you know with religious people the, the, the religious significance is usually given more weight than the other sorts of considerations. But if you speak to sort of a general, just an average American, it's like, it's all those things. And, and the interesting thing to me also is when people give the medical justifications for including physicians, they don't just tell you, well, we do it because it prevents HIV. They say penile cancer, cervical cancer, urinary tract infections, HIV. And it's almost like there's, um, there's like an archaeology that, that needs to be done in sort of, uh, you know, getting into the different layers of rationales. And to me, this makes very clear that it's motivated by something much deeper than just any kind of individual consideration. But have, can you address that? And also, if you can talk to whether some of the other forms of abuse also uh, shared this feature. Well, I think that a majority of any abuse or neglect uh, if you if you were to question the perpetrator, um, very rarely will someone say, "I shouldn't have done that. I was wrong." It's it's m way more common for people to to rationalize in some way that they're not a bad person. They didn't do anything wrong. I think that's kind of a common psychological element. Um, I do think that psychologically, people feel they must belong to a community, to a culture, to a race. They just have to belong. And we have seen through history, people will go through so many rationalizations to justify whatever it is they're doing so that they can still belong. This was the case with Chinese foot binding. It's the case with female genital cutting. It's the case with cutting tribal scars on, on, on children in other countries. It's, it's just amazing what, what 
what people will 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 go what lengths they will go to to rationalize keeping with a custom even if it causes their children sometimes death and and so uh, I, I saw that time and time and time again when I was looking at these criminal cases and these people were on trial for doing these heinous things to their kids sometimes causing their death and and they would just for, for, you know to the end they were holding their Bible and they were saying I know I, I did the right thing and I did the right thing for my child uh, it would have been wrong. It would have been kind of like your father said in the you know. It would have been immoral if I hadn't, if I had taken them to a doctor and I hadn't just prayed for them. Uh, they they just they they want to believe that what they believe is right, and if you have the the God backup, so to speak, to say that, um, well, well, God's behind me in this. God wants me to do this. There, there there's really you know, no stopping. What, what, what adults are capable of doing when it comes to, to what they think is pleasing God. Do you have any questions for me? I am very curious about the couple at Lowe's, the ones that had the, the at the end. Uh, the couple that uh, you interviewed throughout the film. It is, okay, I had their name wrong. Um, uh, the ones that you know, the, the, the doctor, the female doctor ultimately circumcised. Um, I, I wonder two things. What was their attitude about what had happened afterwards if you spoke to them? And also, uh, were they aware that they were being part of a project that was showing the, the negative aspects of circumcision, and how did they feel about that? Well, the Weber Schifrins were, were wonderful, and um, just in terms of giving me access to their lives, and I was really appreciative of it. It was very, very difficult to get anyone to agree to allow me to shoot a circumcision. And I tried, I mean, over the course of the 18 months that it took me to make the film, I must have tried with four or five different families through like three different Mohels. And the Mohels were always like, I just need the permission of the family, no problem. But the families always sort of pulled out at the last minute. And the Weber Schifrins, um, I got through Dr. Phyllis Marks, who I had sort of um, approached, but it, it happened right at the end. It was the very last thing I shot, and it was the very end of the filmmaking process. Um, well, I should say the end of production, right before I went into post. And, um, you know, I didn't, I'm trying to remember, this is a long time ago, but I, I didn't um, sort of try to hide what my film was, was doing, but I didn't come out and say, you know, I'm, I have serious doubts about this practice and I don't think you should do it or anything like that. I was just very sort of upfront. You saw that uh, early on in the interviewing process. I asked them if they were aware that there was a large anti-circumcision movement, what they felt about that, what they thought about that. Um, and they came to the premiere, if I'm not mistaken, um, at the Gene Sisko in Chicago. And I saw them a number of times after that, and they didn't seem upset with me in any way, which made me very happy. I was one of the. I was very concerned because there were people who had absolutely no idea, um, just by nature of the project, they couldn't know where I was coming from and what my particular perspective was, and I couldn't share that with them. And there were a lot of people I didn't share that with, but there were some that um, may not have agreed to participate in the project had they known. Um, and but for the most part. Um, Everyone that was in the film 
uh, and I've spoken to almost everyone. There, there, there may be one or two exceptions, but just about everyone was okay. There was one person, uh, Rabbi Donnie Aaron, the Reform Rabbi in the White, uh, who was the head of the Reform Brit Milah program, who was uh, talking a lot about health benefits. She was a little upset, um, but as it happened, I was able to um, meet with her, and we had a a good conversation that I thought was constructive. Um, the Weber Schifrin's, uh, yeah, so I saw them twice, and they they didn't seem upset at all. And I asked them, you know, is, are you okay with the way you were portrayed? Did, do you feel like, you know, I took any cheap shots? I really tried not to do that. And they said, yeah, no, it was fine. And they, they totally got it, and they were very understanding. And 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 after their, their the circumcision uh, occurred, I mean, the look on their faces, you know, is they were seemed kind of mortified. Um, did they talk to you about their feelings about circumcision after having chosen to do that and having witnessed it? You know, what happened after the bris, and I actually got footage of this that I did not include in the film because I thought, um, I thought it was too much, actually. Um, we went up for the first diaper change, and I caught it on film. And, I mean, the bris scene in my film, I think, is very hard to watch. Um, this was beyond that. Um, the, the baby's penis was swollen to about five times its normal size. It was bright red. Um, and Dr. Marks told the parents not to expect the penis to look normal for years. Um, and it was, it was, there's a lot of graphic footage in my film, but I felt that this would have been stepping over the line a little bit. Um... And that, that's sort of what we did after, after the bris itself. I went up and I, I caught this footage. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I did, you know, I slowed down the footage when, right after the bris, when you see um, Aaron crying. Um, and that sort of mirrored in the, a previous bris, the Orthodox bris, which was actually my cousin. My aunt was crying at that after the guy said, you know, he took it like a man, what a guy, what a guy. And you see her crying. And I, I, I tried to emphasize those moments because I think, very much like what you were saying, the, the women who are clearly not okay with what's going on on some very primal, deep level, their feelings aren't really taken into consideration. In fact, if you pay attention to the Orthodox bris, uh, that one, again, my cousins, um, the women are in the women's section. They're in a completely different part of the synagogue and in traditional brises it's been that way since the uh, middle ages that the the women are basically physically removed from the ritual space uh and you know they, they hand the baby off and then they get the baby back after after it's done and i think that's important to to note this is a may seem like a strange comparison but um there's there's a book called the child's song and it's written by um, a religious scholar who who talks about the story of Abraham and Isaac and how Sarah is completely left out of that story. You know, Abraham and Isaac head up the mountain. We never hear anything about Sarah's feelings about that whatsoever. And this kind of reminded me of that, that the women were just not part of it in some ways they were but for the most part it it's based on a patriarchal ritual and 
I think that's the only way this kind of ritual can continue and continue like that is because it is based on a on a patriarchal type of uh, of of system. I think we're going to open it up to questions from the audience now, if that's all right with you. So let's pass this around. Just hold it like this when you talk. <laughs> Anybody have any questions or comments? Well, I have several, but I'll, do, I'll just ask one to start. Um, and please tell us who you're addressing. I, okay, I'm addressing you, Ellie. Um, <laughs> and uh, let's see, which question do I want to start with? I guess, uh, you know, I, I, first of all, I just want to say the film is amazing, very powerful. And um, I'm, I'm curious about the, uh, I think she's a rabbi, the one who was, who was quoting all the study after study after study that proved that circumcision does have health benefits. And when you ask her that question, if, it, if you were to find out that there were studies that disagreed with that, and she was so emphatically, yes, I would look at them. I speak for the whole Reformed Jewish or whatever she was, you know, we would. I mean, did you ever go any further with that and saying, well, what about these studies, this study, this study? Or? Well, she saw the film and she was not, oh. she was not happy about right. it. Right, right. Um, and that was the, the specific thing you're talking about is the, the problem that she had. She felt that that edit point where I go from her saying we would look at that very seriously, you know, if a large body of evidence, and then I cut to me presenting evidence to my father, yeah. that's the cut that really bothered her. She felt that um, I hadn't presented that to her in her interview, so it was like not fair for me to do that. But, you know, I felt that was totally fair game, and I thought she was getting her facts wrong, and I, you know, if, I, my responsibility to an, uh, a, an interview subject is to accurately and fairly represent what they're saying, you know, not to make sure that they don't say something wrong. If they right. say something wrong, that's fair game as far as I'm concerned. But I did um, have an opportunity to meet with her afterwards, and we had a good conversation about it. And I said to her, um, you know, have you, like, let, let's assume for the sake of argument that you're everything you claim about the health benefits is true and at the same time that everything that I'm saying about the detrimental sexual effects are true. Have you ever considered that? And she was very honest and she said she had never thought of that, of that possibility. Um, and that's sort of where we left it. And I, I mean, you know, I, whatever, that was a disappointing moment to me. I, I had a number of very strong disappointments with the liberal movements in Judaism as I was going through the process of making this film. And now, you know, for years I've been trying to show this to people and the reactions that I've been getting actually in a, in a very uh, ironic way, um, much stronger reactions against what I'm doing and what I'm trying to promote when I'm trying to promote the film from the liberal Jews than from the Orthodox mm -hmm. Jews um, which is that's a whole interesting subject in and of itself but um, you know the fact that the the head of the reforms program the national program of the reform movement hadn't contemplated that very simple logical possibility um, sort of says a lot about where the reform movement and liberal Judaism in general is on this issue, and it's, I mean, sadly on many issues. But just to just to complete that part with the part with her, so, but I mean, there are a lot of studies she's not looking at, obviously, right? Right. 
And I mean, so. look, when I got the sense talking to her, uh, both when we were doing the interview and afterwards, that um, she has her experts that she goes to, and they're basically the, they happen to be the circumcision proponents in this country, the Edgar Schoens of the world, um, you know, the Baileys, uh, these, these sorts of folk who, um, you know, I mean, that's a whole film could be made about how it is that those people, <laughs> you know, are doing what they're doing. But um, those are her experts. Those are the people she trusts. And she sort of filters out the other stuff. And I think a lot of people who are motivated, a lot of people in the medical profession, too, are motivated by uh, subconscious forces that they're not entirely aware of. Um, they also will filter out things that go contrary to what they believe. I mean, where to begin? Do we need this? We do. Okay. Okay, first I want to say something to you about your dad. That last speech. Can you hold speech, the mic or something? That last speech. I want you to be able to choose to do. I mean, he'd already emasculated you on that level of being able to choose what you're going to do with your life by chopping, I assume, I'm making an assumption here, of chopping off your foreskin. You don't have to answer that question, well, but I'm assuming. It's in the film. Right, that's what I thought. I thought, well, I'm putting my foot in my mouth. But you remember, I mean, he says that, and I'm thinking to myself, well, what is he talking about? He, it, you know, it's more important to him that you have a free choice to live your life the way you want to do it, but it's absolute BS, right? I just want to say that. I mean, it was just so obvious to me that he didn't give well, a shit. Yeah, I mean, Sorry. I think there's, there's a cinematic irony in that moment in the film where he says that, which is yeah. interesting, and I, I'm completely aware of it, and I included it in the film. Right. No, no, um, no, but it was really... Uh, yeah, but, I mean, what he was so talking sorry. about at that moment was my decision about what I'm going to do with yeah. my kids. Um, and I, it should be, it should be noted that, um, I think he changed over the course of yeah. the making of I the film. I got that sense that there was this evolution that he had gone through from the beginning of the film when he was first interviewed and, and he actually said, no, I, you know, you, no, you have to circumcise yourself. I mean, he, he, he only saw it that way, but then later he, he recognized the importance I was giving him credit for that. I, I, I saw him recognizing the importance to allow an individual autonomy to make, make a choice like that. And, and so I, I, I appreciated that, that bridge he had, he had traversed. Yeah, and I mean, just this is something you don't know. There's no way you could know this. But he's very supportive of me and my career and cut. And he's participated in a number of discussions about it. Awesome. And... Um, that's an amazing, to appreciate what that means for a person like my father, that's a pretty, it's an amazing thing because he's a deeply religious man. He's very complex and complicated man, but he is deeply religious. And for him to be supportive of me in questioning one of the central tenets of the Jewish tradition is a pretty remarkable thing. Um, so yeah. Okay, I mean, that, that's a very difficult, that's a very sensitive issue to talk about the freedom to choose anyway. Um, freedom is a very touchy subject. But I want to go to the women, being a woman. And I really get it that 
In terms of fulfillment, sexual fulfillment, to make love, and again, you see, we're, we're touching on real sensitive issues because if I say to you, to make love with a man who's circumcised is definitely inferior than making love with a man who is uncircumcised, I've already started a massive riot. Not with you, because you're way, let me finish, because I'm, I'm channeling. And it's very difficult for me to channel publicly, but I'm a channeler, okay? So I don't know what's gonna come. So please just let me do my thing, and then you know, let your left brain do whatever. I'm talking about women, and I am deeply, deeply grateful that you are doing this. Um, just so you know, I have twin sons. One of them did it to their son and the other one didn't. And I didn't do it to them. So I've gone through some pretty deep stuff about this, but I'm not even gonna go there. As a woman, what happened that suddenly us women were denied our tremendous ability to, to merge our fundamental spiritual energy from, se I, I'm a disciple of Osho, who you may or may not know, right. From the one who doesn't blink. Uh, I don't know if he does, he's, he's, it's, he's I, gone beyond blinking now. Yeah, so no, no. I, I don't know. It's the, the most remarkable thing when I watch an Osho video is that the man doesn't blink. <laughs> right. I, I've never seen that, but yeah, sorry, go on. No, no, thank you, I'll, I'll have to notice that. Um, from sex to superconsciousness, because we're talking about a f an enormous subject here, which really is our right to experience who we really are. And experience, and knowing who we are is not just something in the mind. Knowing who we are is knowing who we are on an energy level. We are energy beings. And I work in natural medicine, and essence before mass, you only heal yourself if you deal with the energy body. Well, you can only, it's like the, the Mozart symphony. You only deal with your energy body if sex is allowed. So the sexual suppression, whether it's, you know, I mean, there's many, many sexual suppressions, but this is like the massive sexual suppression as far as I'm concerned as a woman. Because it, it's, it is that, whole violin section's not there. It is that, that lull that you can go into with, and, and you can transcend that too. So it's not the only way there, but it is an amazing gift from the universe that we have that rhythm of sensuality. So cutting off the foreskin is actually removing the possibility of sensuality for men and women. So what happened back there? Because I've been up in um, Kashmir and the tantric Buddhists, um, the, the, the women make love to all the men in the family. You know, it, it, it's accepted that a woman has enough juju to go around everybody. I mean, you know, um, this is not so in uh, many um, Muslim, groups, but in Tantric Buddhism, way up in Ladakh, where I visited, that's how it is. 
a, a woman marries the oldest son, and then she's the lover for all the men in the family. So that tremendous capacity of woman was just trampled on. And so it wasn't just to stop men from masturbating or um, having too much sex. It was also to suppress us from our fulfillment and giving our men fulfillment. You know, right, so that's really, I just want to go there. Yeah, no, no, th th and thank you for your comments. I want to um, just relate that to something very interesting that I heard. We showed uh, the film at a sex-positive film festival in Chicago, mm -hmm. and one of the really interesting things, and, you know, I, I do these screenings, and I hear, you know, you get sort of the same things over and over. One of the things that I heard at this um, that I had not thought of and I had not heard of before, which I think is so interesting, is that male circumcision sort of destroys the interiority of the penis. And that in a way, and this was from a gender studies um, uh, major, and that by doing that, it defeminizes the penis. And I'd never thought about it that way, of, of the foreskin sort of being like the interior that there that there's an interior and an exterior to the penis and that that in a very profound and um gender gendered way what you're doing is you're you're taking away that interiority and making it even more masculine as it were explain what you mean by that a little bit more because i i'm not understanding when you're talking about the interior right so the foreskin the way it works is it's a double layer of skin and it covers the glands and the glands comes out during erection um, and it goes back in when the penis is not erect. I, there's variability in that and some men have longer foreskins, some men have shorter foreskins, but the interior meaning the inner foreskin and the covering of the glands is kind of an interiority because it's, it sits there as its own contained unit that's covered <laughs> and then it comes out and it goes back. And so that what the, what the student was, was getting at was that, that circumcision destroys that. Um, I thought those are very interesting. Do you have anything to say on, the, on this? There's a couple things, yeah. Um, just following up on what you said about, um, well, I'm not going to use, I, I, what I was hearing from you, which, which I felt very strongly, is that um, cultures controlling sexuality has with all of these intentions of purifying us has really led to our detriment. And um, as I do mention in, in going to history on this in my book, the um, practice of circumcision for males in preventing them or trying to stop them from masturbating was also done on females. It started in the around the late 1800s it went through who knows how long i ended up interviewing a woman in my book who who had it done when she was uh probably around seven and she's my age um and she was not jewish muslim you know she was uh, she says a wasp a wasp woman so that's the one thing i wanted to point out is that that whole repression of sexuality happened in this country for both girls and boys um, and the other thing is, and why I'm so glad that you did bring uh, highlight this, the, the 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 negative effect on sexuality in your film is because I've always felt the medical stuff I think bores people to death in, in a, a lot of times, and it's just used as you say as a rationalization. 
when people are asked why do they circumcise, you know, they never go to that. They always go to, you know, it's customary. You know, I want him to look like his dad and these kind of reasons. But the thing that would, I think, would be most uh, discouraging in terms of circumcising boys is the sexuality aspect yeah. of it. Mm -hmm. If women were to say it's better with a uncircumcised man, and if men were to say, hey, I've had it both, you know, I, it feel, it, it's the sexual uh, sensitivity is so much more heightened when, you know, when I was uncircumcised, I, I think that would make a bigger difference in this country than, than any other type of, of reasoning. I just, I, I, I wish that that was something that was brought out more. And so I'm so glad your film really, really, um, really wanted, got into that. And story. yeah, and I, I mean, I emphasized it because, and this is, you know, part of, there are a lot of reasons why I think it's important, but for me, the really sort of central ethical argument against circumcision is that it has lifelong consequences. Mm -hmm. And it's not, you know, this is one of the big misapprehensions that a lot of people have. They think that the central problem is the pain that you're causing the infant. And the way I look at it is you're causing a, you're damaging a person's nervous system and that lasts, that damage is permanent and it lasts their whole life. And so the sexual effects of that, and I, it has to be said that it's very difficult, and I said this in the film, and I, I, you have to be honest about this, it's really difficult to talk about pleasure scientifically. It's difficult to talk about pain scientifically. These are not um, right. experiences that science has very good t tools, philosophy even doesn't have very good tools for really giving you any kind of precision or empirical fact. But when you talk to people who have experienced both states, that's interesting. And we, we, we heard from people in my film that experienced both states and have a, a very strong preference for one over the other. I think, I think it was very impactful. And I, and I think, you know, seeing, seeing the, the, the procedure being done and, and what those babies went through. I mean, I just tweeted about this, the, the 10 videos. I don't know if you've seen this, where it shows 10 clips on YouTube, one right after the other, and all it is is watching a baby, being circumcised, and going from happy baby to, you know, that frenetic, distressed child. And, and, and but sad to say that I think that when it comes to a lot of people's mindsets, even that is sort of not enough to get, get them to really come over the fence. And so only until they see sort of a, they can really relate and, and see a personal gain or loss. Um, I, I, I just think that if more people were aware of the, the sensitivity issue, that would really, that would really make a big change, as well as the, the, the financial. The, the fact that now insurance is not covering circumcision as much is as it is done in other countries, um, driven the rate down in this country. Hi, I just really appreciated the film. <laughs> I know I could talk about, you know, genital mutilation, circumcision for hours and hours and I have with many of my friends about so so many there's so many layered issues that go along with the problem. Oh, it's just overwhelming. Um but, you know, in the spirit of keeping with <laughs> discussing your film and your making of the film, I, I just wanted to say, first of all, that I respect you so much, so much for, 
you know, taking the front in, in for, you know, against your family and so to speak, you know, and asking the tough questions and really bringing this up and, and coming to your own consciousness. And, you know, I don't know the story behind all of that, of course, but I just find it so powerful and so moving. It's so difficult to talk to our family about taboo subjects, but especially something like this, that's so centered on, you know, your entire cultural, um, living and life for you and your family. So I really respect that. But one of the things that Marilyn had said during the film was, you know, people just, I believe it was Marilyn said, people just close their ears. They just don't want to talk about it. We have all of these great things that all of us can say about why this is so bad and why we need to stop doing this immediately. But people, you, we have so much information we can give them, but no one wants to hear it. And so I was just wondering um, about your opinion after making the film, what do you think is as an appropriate way to 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 kind of have the hands come off of the ears i mean i know that it can be different ways with different communities obviously if the, if it's people who are very religious you would have to approach it differently but like in the united states you know, even my family, you know, everyone was circumcised. I come from a huge family. My grandfather's a, a minister, an Orthodox Christian minister. And, you know, why do they do it? Um, and so, and then people who are, who are atheists will still do it. I mean, there's just so many, there's so many people who keep their hands over the ears for, for what you would think would be different reasons, but I think it might all be the same. And I was just wondering if you could talk about, about that a little bit. So my answer to that question is, I could give it in one word, I'll try and elaborate, I'm not going to be obtuse, but um, <laughs> I think it's art. Um, and I'm a filmmaker, and I believe in the power of film to, to affect people. And I believe that it has, that art in general, has the ability to pierce um, people's beings and to get to the heart of a matter in a way that um, that prose for example can't really do um, one of the things that I love about film is its ability to involve multiple senses um, and to create an experience that's not just you know about sort of language or you know reason but it, it, it can bring everything to the table um, so it's it's so wonderful for that reason and it, and I am so affected by film and art for that reason too is that it's not just about engaging the left brain if you if if we can use an old cliche um it's it's really about engaging both sides of the brain and what it means to be a human being and so you know maybe I'm uh maybe I'm naive but I I believe in the power of art to change people it's changed me in many profound ways um Having said that, it's not easy to get people to the Q&A part. <laughs> I feel like once I've got someone watching my film and they, they watch it through, what usually happens, um, and someone who hasn't thought about this much before, is that there's like a flood of interest. Like a f all of a sudden, you know, this thing that you hadn't thought about, that you didn't have the tools to think about, you now have all the tools, and now all you want to do is talk about it. And I've had this experience on numerous occasions where we've had sort of more general audiences attend, and then, like, the Q&A session will go on for two hours or two and a half hours because people just, all of a sudden, they, they just, well, why this and why that? And what are the effects here and what are the effects there? And, like, how is this similar to something else? And, and so the challenge is, the practical challenge to me is getting people on the seats getting people to watch it um 
And that's been a consistent challenge since I made the film. I feel like it's changing. I feel like there's been a, a ground shift uh, since 2000, between 2007 when I finished the film and now in 2011. I do think that people are more willing to engage, um, but it's slow. And it's a really, you know, one of the things that is also challenging for people who are passionate about, have been passionate about the subject for a long time, is to not delude yourself into thinking that you're being more effective than you actually are. This sort of progress is very, very gradual. You know, it'll hopefully reach a tipping point at which things start to go faster. I think we saw that um, with gay rights, um, which I'm not trying to suggest that there's no more work to be done, but uh, a few years back, I think we hit a tipping point on that issue and things are moving faster now. We're not there with male circumcision, um, yeah. but you know, we'll get there. But in order to get there, we have to not pretend that we're somewhere where we're not. Yeah. You yeah. know how I think we did, we know that we were at that tipping point with gay rights is that there are, speaking of art, so you know, you can't have a sitcom now that doesn't have a character who's a gay man. Yeah. Or maybe a gay woman, but more, you know, more so a gay man. I just think that's very telling. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. What I just wanted to, to comment back. I agree about art. I think it is so powerful, whether it's a picture or a movie. It, it is very powerful. But I think, you know, for me, you know, I have Facebook and I have my voice through the, the e-world and, and through my friends, you know, the social media to, to just keep talking about it and keep talking about it. And, um, and, you know, I'm proud to say I've saved some babies from the horrors of this. And my friends have saved their friends. Um, and so I know that it's, it is moving and it is changing. But when I think about Canada, whose rates drop so drastically, so quickly, you know, and how sl much slower the progress has been here in the U.S., it, I think it just it really frustrates me. And I'm, and I'm just constantly looking for a way to somehow put up that big blinking billboard that no one can ignore and we can, and we can do more. But definitely... Yeah, definitely people like you who I, who I wish I could walk around with a billboard on top of my head that had these flashing statements about fluoride being toxic and, you know, <laughs> I wish I had something like that that didn't give me cancer, right? You are right? doing that. And I, I, I appreciate you um, trying to educate society and, and that's great that you have made these inroads. But I'm going to guess that it hasn't been always easy. It's so difficult. As a matter of fact, before I came here, I had put up a comment saying that I was coming here. I was so excited. I work at a child care center, and every day, every single boy that I change is cut. And he's so sensitive, and it's so difficult to change their diapers. And one of my family members immediately responded, yeah, um, that happened to me. Can you imagine all these, um, all these uh, what was it, something about... Um, abortionists who want to kill their babies but at least I wasn't aborted at least you know at least it was just my foreskin that I lost you know I mean this madness that you have to go up against to discuss you know to discuss the issue the things that you you seem to have to engage with people when just to break down to get mm -hmm. them to you know it's maddening it's, it's like a lot of energy it, it is I do think <laughs> I am very optimistic actually about the rates in this country going down and comparing it to Canada um, there was a death as you guys probably know um, which, which, which did affect public opinion, but my understanding is the primary reason why the rates went down so sharply was because insurance was no, not covering those surgeries. And now you're seeing the same thing happening here. Um, so, that uh, Medicaid. Th this was um, 
10 years ago or something it's not, I mean, I, I can't remember. Right in the States, is that In the States, I've begun to read articles about how insurance companies are covering it uh, less and less. Yes. And so that's what gives me hope that that's yeah. going to be reflected in the same way. And with the economy the way it is, I just think that there, that change is going to happen more and more. Ellie and I talked about that on the way here, how the 17, 18 states now that Medicaid is not covering circumcision anymore because it's a cosmetic procedure and they're like, why are we paying for this? You know, we could save a lot of money. You do have other states that have responded like Texas. Michelle Richardson, in fact, wrote a letter, um, wrote to several members of, you know, the legislature and and her response, then the responses they got back was, this is a parent's decision. We're not going to mess with it. Right. You know, yeah, exactly. Anywhere, yeah, totally. But uh, I, um, I wanted to say something. <laughs> I, um, you know, uh, really admire the way that you're able to really do this without being so emotional with the, when you're interviewing. And I mean, I know you, this is, this is your, your art, your, you know, what you do. Um, but I just, you know, my, my blood pressure starts going, my heart rate starts pumping and I'm just like, and I'm, then I can't talk cause I just get, it just gets really emotional for me. So I have to say that for you to be able to present this in such a, you know, a way for people to be able to really hear you is, you know, pretty profound. Oh, thanks. Right? I am a, I mean, I'm not a Vulcan. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, uh. I do get it. Right. I, I get emotional given right. the right circumstances. Right. But you know, right. when, I do, when I'm conducting an interview, mm -hmm. I'm tr I try to focus on, mm -hmm. you know, what the person's saying and, mm -hmm. and and that dynamic. So it doesn't help to sort of. Right. I, although you know, from time to time, I lose my cool a little bit. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Right. But um, I guess I kind of want to switch it up a little bit um, and referring to your book as well as with um and a question for you too that one thing that struck me in your book that a lot of people have no idea about it was something that i didn't know about even you know quite a ways into my journey studying this was something i didn't find out for quite a while was that the original antiquated if i could say that word right pronounce right i'm cold of of the original way that circumcision was performed is not how we do it now where it was a, a ritual nick sometimes um the moil had to actually tuck the blood out of the penis so that there would be enough blood to have it be a blood sacrifice and that i wondered I guess how is was that anything that you have ever brought up to any rabbis you know Ellie or any moels you know as far as uh, there's such a deviation from the way it was originally performed is that history correct right yeah well, I'll, I'll take it in the interview. right I'd love to hear your answer on that yeah, yeah I, I mean it's true I think it's there's pretty solid historic evidence that um, before the time of the Mishnah which is like second century CE when it was redacted um, that it was a less radical procedure and, mm -hmm. and we do sort of know I, it wasn't a ritual nick I mean mm -hmm. they took off the anterior foreskin that overhung the glands which okay. most likely included the ridge band so okay. I mean it was still that's why I wasn't sure about yeah yeah mm -hmm. no that was still okay. that's still there and just interestingly uh, 
in the recent upsurge in public attention around this earlier in the summer, mm-hmm. um, I, I was asked to write an op-ed for the forward about what was going on in San Francisco. And in some of the follow-up um, to that in the forward, there's a journalist there by the name of Jay Michelson who mm-hmm. actually suggested, he said, look, we have these two sides and they both feel very passionately about this. Maybe the compromise solution should be that we should go back to the old style of circumcising where it's just the the bit of foreskin overhanging the 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 glands that it's not the more radical form and the more radical form by the way includes um priya which is the tearing away mm-hmm. of the mucosa and mitzitza is the third step in a traditional jewish circumcision which is the suction that you were referring mm-hmm. to some orthodox jews still practice it mm-hmm. um with direct oral to genital contact mm-hmm. um most i'd say most orthodox jews when they do the mitzitza part the suction part mm-hmm. they use a sterile pipette now because uh, when the germ theory of disease came about in the late 19th mm-hmm. century um, that was sort of legislated by orthodox rabbis that we should be using a sterile pipette so that kids don't get infected. And, you know, we know from the New York cases that there are still, in particular, Hasidic Jews are insistent on the direct oral to genital suction. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yes, there was a difference. Mm -hmm. I do believe that even in the old form, because the ridge band is so distal in the foreskin, Mm -hmm. that was probably ablated. But I guess some of the mechanical action would have remained. The historical reason given for the change, um, interestingly, is that Jews were restoring their foreskins. Um, uh, because they wanted to appear in the Olympic Games. And also because uh, Hellenic culture at the time was something that a lot of Jews were attracted to. Mm -hmm. Um, So what they were doing was they were, I guess the the scholarly word for it is epiplasty or something like that, but they were putting weights on the remainder of their foreskin and stretching it forward, and the rabbis didn't like that, so they said, well, we're going to... We're gonna we're gonna do it in a way that you can't restore. Is your mother alive? Because she was really absent from this film. My mother is alive, and very ashamed of my work. Oh. And she is a religious fundamentalist. Um, not like my father. At are all. they together? They are together. Oh. She's a religious fundamentalist. She thinks that what I'm doing is terrible. Um. I'm not sure if she's ever sat through the film. Um, I asked her to be in it, and she refused. Um, she she's very suspicious of most of my work. So do you, do you? I mean, you still speak and everything, or yeah, I try to have a cordial relationship with her, but it's um, you know, my mother-in-law happens to be a fundamentalist Christian, mm. um, so I have people in my life that I care about who are, who sort of feel like they live on a different planet. Um, And one of the things that I have tried to learn how to do is to maintain relationships with people like that. And it's very difficult. Yeah. Um, But, like, really important. And, And it, I dare say it's sort of a challenge of my generation. Because if you look around the country, (laughs) um, there are a lot of people like this. And, I'm not, and maybe this is a mistake, but I'm not of the belief that you can just write them off and ignore them or not talk to them or not have real relationships with them. I think that's admirable. Um, So what that does is it opens me up to a world of pain. Um, But, like, you have to to work it. You know, you got to use humor. You have to 
use all the tools at your disposal to try and um, maintain connections and avoid being heard and try to make yourself heard even though you know that it's going to go in one ear and out the other sometimes and yeah it's tough and is the brother you interviewed your only sibling i have five siblings oh um so my brother naftali you saw in the film and four sisters um he's the only other person in my family who's circumcised (laughs) um but uh and he's yeah he actually being in the film and sort of seeing the work afterwards he um, is dead set against circumcision now. And your sisters? Um, have I? I have so I have four sisters. I haven't spoken to all of them about it. One of them had a boy and circumcised him, but she's very religious. Um, I did have a talk with her beforehand. Um, I haven't really had deep conversations with my other sisters about it so much. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, my brother's against it. Um, and very eloquent. Um, he's a he's a shaman mm. um, in training, I suppose still. But so he he has um, a very interesting way of talking about it. Yeah. That's our show. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please email them to us at cutdocumentary@gmail.com. And if you like what you've heard today, please support us by buying our film at www dot cut the film dot com.